When he came back, he handed that branch to his father, and everyone just stood there waiting for the reckoning. And then Bakri handed me the stick, right in front of everybody, like stuck it in my face, right out there. One hand offering me the branch, his other hand clasping his son's skinny little arm. Hello, and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's a podcast aimed at folks who enjoy talking about heavy things lightly. On this pod, we use theology, history, and philosophy in years of deeply immersive experiences in foreign cultures to figure out how, how do we get here? Because it's, it's getting crazy. Our pod goes beyond the rhetorical rabbits and instead examines contemporary cultural phenomena from what we call an old world lig. That's ligament. That's the root of the word religion. Religion. Join me, John Hears, and our First Things Foundation field workers as we wonder aloud why are we talking about rabbits? This is episode 14. This is Toxic Masculinity. Welcome. So. Toxic male stuff. When should my daughters, I got four of them, when should my daughters call a dude out for being toxic? What if he's ghosting them? If you know what that means, you know, that just means like, you just disappear on them. Toxic? Naked phone pics? Toxic? I'm going toxic on that one. Raising your voice, men. Is that toxic? Balling a fist. Not paying alimony. Not bathing regularly. It could literally be toxic. What about going out with your guy buddies, say, five times a week? Toxic? What about gaslighting? Seems toxic. What's a toxic bail? Man, This thing could get a little sideways. It's a sprawling conversation. Really should have had a guest on for this one, but then it might have just been too, too sprawling. So let's, let's go at it. Let's see if we can stay straight, not get sideways on this one. And let's see if we can take a look at things through a pre-enlightenment kind of old world lens. I think the best way to talk about this And to summarize it is to say light people, especially feminists in, say, 1970s, right around then, light people generally today base all of their understanding of men and masculinity on the twin notions of power and equality. Now, light people, again, are people of the Enlightenment, like me. People raised a certain way to think a certain way. The Enlightenment, go back and you can listen to some of our previous Uh, episodes to get a really good handle on this, but it's folks in the modern world. They really think about man and woman in terms of power and equality. For them, for light people, men are bad when they are creating inequality. Old worlders, people from the, say, the developing world, the people from who live closer to how folks lived in 1650, let's say, People we work with in our in our nonprofit, 
Well, they tend to base their assumptions on men and masculinity on the twin assumptions that God has created laws for men and that men have a certain physiology. But that's just a lot of words. And it's a way to kind of preview what we're going to get into. So let's use some real-world experiences right now to figure this out. What is toxic masculinity? So not so recently, I lived in a mud hut in Mali in West Africa. In that hut, I sat alone a lot. I sat alone a lot because, well, as an American serving in the Peace Corps, my previous life before the mud hut included lots of, that's right, sitting alone and reading and thinking. Like Descartes, way back at the beginning of the light people revolution, he's one of the key revolutionary thinkers. Alone, a lot, thinking, therefore being. And it was weird there in the mud hut, and I knew it was weird because lots of kids would come and stare at me while I read. At first, they'd just walk into my house and sit there and watch me quietly, and then... When that got a little distracting, because it is, I would tell them, yeah, guys, go outside to the best of my ability in a broken Bombera. And they'd go outside, but then they'd just get on each other's shoulders and stare in through my little mud hut window for hours at a time. Or however long I was reading, eventually their voyeurism got under my skin, okay, and I decided to head over to their mud hut compound and visit their mom's and complain a little, and their mothers yelled at them, but not even without looking up from their work. So guess what happened? The next day they were back. So my next trip was to visit their fathers, one father in particular. His name was Bakari Abubakar, and this was a big dude. And I told big Bakari and very broken Bambara that I'd really appreciate it if his kid would stop haunting my mud hut and stop staring at me. And I I would really appreciate it, Bakri, if he would take his little gang and knock it off. Bakri told me that I should just tell them myself. And I said, well, I had lots of times. And so Bakri called his son over and told him to knock it off. And then he ended his very short knock it off speech with a very large open hand whack on the back of his son's neck. And I cringed a little and also was kind of a little happy. And Madhu didn't come around the next day, but he did come around the day after that. Yeah. And I tried to survive his stares for about an hour, but I failed. And then I complained one more time to his father. And his father told me, Jomagan, that was my name, smack him, please, already, and do it with a baobab branch. Get one of those branches. Uh, those things hurt. Okay. He said, trust me, just hit him. And I told Bakri that wasn't my thing. Cause you know, that's not my thing, man. I don't, I don't like to whack a kid. And, uh, you know, I was, I was what, 26 and I wasn't going to whack his kid. He told me, okay, fine. Don't worry about it. See how that goes for you. And sure enough, the kids were back the next day and the day after that. And then sometime during that week or the next month, Or I don't know when it was, but it was whenever my head popped off, I kind of freaked out. And yeah, I broke. And I broke badly. And I started chasing them. I don't know. I may have even had that branch. I had something in my hand. I was, I lost it. 
right? And I chased them like a wild animal. And I chased them right into their compound where Bakri was taking tea with a bunch of other men, right? I cornered them, and Bakri wasn't so happy this time. The hell is going on, right? I'm like a grown person chasing these kids. This is embarrassing. But he's like, Madhu, what are you doing? And as he shouted at him, I was sort of shouting too, like, but you have to realize it's coming out all ridiculous. Like, Me happy, no good, no happy, no happy good. And I'm like, I'm sick and tired of these guys. They're not respecting me, yada, yada. And Bakri listened for a moment. He kind of barely tell what I could say, what I was even saying. And then he looked at his son and he said, go get the branch. Yikes. And Manu started to walk like he was a robot and started to cry like the Tin Man. He was like marching and and wailing and crying wah 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 as he walked it was it was nuts and as he walked away like sort of like screaming like in this feline kind of wah wah i was like finally his father's gonna teach him to stop disrespecting the foreign guy who's visiting man I'm trying to live there man come on i'm not a kid well Mato returned, and man, he picked a big branch. What was that about? It was big. Like, I'm picking, right? No one's picking that branch that's big, but he did. When he came back, he handed that branch to his father, and everyone just stood there waiting for the reckoning. And then Bakri handed me the stick, right in front of everybody, like stuck it in my face, right out there. One hand offering me the branch, his other hand clasping his son's skinny little arm. And with that time stood still. To this day, I can still see Madu. Well, actually, I see Madu's uvula. Right in the back of his throat. As his mouth is perfectly round and he's screaming, Ah! Wah! Wah! I did it. I took that switch with his father holding Madu's little skinny arm, I just whacked that kid. Whack, whack. I don't might have been three times. I might have tried to get one in on one of his little henchman buddies. I went at it. I'm not proud of it, but I like broke. I'm talking, Madu's a kid I loved. Still love him. But man, I let it rip. He was the best kid in Molly. And I let it rip. And he cried. And I... I don't, I didn't even care. Might have even whacked me four times. I don't know. I let it go, man. And gosh, were those men impressed. I know, it's weird. They were like, mm-hmm, well done. Bakri was impressed. His buddies were impressed. The kids, they like were like, whoa, Mr. Foreign White Guy getting at it. And the Dugutiki, the chief even called me over later in the day. I heard what you did. <laughs> it was nuts. Everybody was like impressed. And guess what? You already guessed it. Madu did not come back to my house. That little 10-year-old kid was like, nah, I'm good. No, not going back there. At least not until I invited him. 
and then he came back because I had gained respect in his eyes. And here's the question. Was I being a toxic male? Was I being a toxic male? What if I told you that Bakri, the father who handed me the whipping stick, the papa who taught me to hit his kid, what if I told you that he would also walk hand in hand with me, like boyfriend and boyfriend, wherever we went? He did that. Most men did in the village. What if I told you that Bakri would often take time to make sure his wives could go and visit their families? Like, they would go off on their own, often, back to their home village or maybe to the big the, the, the big village where the, um, the biggest market was, Bankamana, and they would go there. And he would take over their chores. He was tender that way. Toxic? Still toxic? More toxic? I'm toxic because I hit him? I don't really know if this makes me toxic. I swear I don't know. But I did a lot of reading for this pod and for my classes in the past, and I've seen a lot of stuff overseas, so we're going to get at it now. But try, really try right now. Try to answer it in your own head. Was it toxic the way we acted? Were our actions mine, Bakaris? Were we planting a toxic masculinity into the mind and soul of this 10-year-old boy? Were we preparing him to pass down a type of violence? Hmm. Man to boy, father to son. We'll get there, but think about that while I tell you another story. This one's from East Africa. This story is interesting because it's actually based on a dissertation written by this Kenyan. I found it very interesting. I wanted to share it with you. You can find it in the pod notes, right? This dissertation is from a Meru man, M-E-R-U. It's a that's an ethnic group in Kenya, and they live in the plains near Mount Kenya in the Nyambani mountain range. And his name, the writer who you're going to hear from here, is Jacob Kanake. And he tells of his own passage into manhood using the Meru circumcision tradition. Here's what he says, and I quote, All the boys are escorted into the circumcision field by warriors from our extended families. Everyone is singing and dancing hero songs. Right here he's describing the big day when he becomes a man. In our right hands, each of the boys, including me, we carry a thin green ritual shrub with a few leaves and a young bud. The young bud is called Muthanguru. The green bud, that Muthanguru, is fragile and it can break easily and it requires great care until our surgery, until our evisceration is complete. We boys were meant to undergo the surgery holding the shrub in our hands, never letting it go. If we showed any sign of fear, the fragile shrub's bud would be removed by one of the elders, cut off, removed with the missing bud then taken out to one of our sisters or perhaps to our mother who was waiting at a distance outside of the ritual circle that we were in. That would doom us. It would mean we had been afraid and we had failed during our circumcision 
Afterward, however, if we successfully completed the ordeal, if we made it through without showing fear, our mothers and sisters could jump for joy and run proudly up and down the field, thundering adulations and singing themselves hoarse. Every boy longed to hear their family chant the great song, Do not fear, he is coming back to us, wearing a lion's mane. Unquote. Kanake, the writer, right? He's describing how he has to stay strong during his circumcision, which hurts uh, BT dubs a lot. So Kanake, the writer, after writing his circumcision story this way, he adds another paragraph that's just fascinating. He adds another paragraph about what happens, right? And he adds it about how things are changing in contemporary Kenya. He says, today, quote, in our communities where the culture is deteriorating, these older warriors who join us to teach us, well, sometimes they beat the initiates. They inflict fresh wounds on the young bodies. Besides being inappropriate, the wounds are another possible way of spreading infection. Parents, elders, and provincial leaders today, they detest and condemn this new way of instilling discipline. It's important that we work hard now to eliminate these inappropriate physical beatings. Our Meru families deserve a ritual without the beatings in order to launch their children into a proper manhood. Unquote. Hmm. He's really, he's really rejecting this beating that takes place within the ceremony. It's fascinating. The guy who got his private parts cut off without anesthesia is upset that he also got a beating. One act of violence seems a lot different than the other, doesn't it? One act of courage, holding the muthanguru, not dropping it, through the evisceration, well, that seems really different than the other act of courage. One act seems good, the other seems, let's say it, toxic. And here's a thing to consider. It's a real important consideration. What would soccer moms think of both events? Hmm. Can we call both types of these activities toxic from a perspective, say, suburban Philadelphia? Right? Can we even call this type of activity toxic if it doesn't involve light people culture? In other words, does the term toxic travel, does toxic masculinity travel and apply to other cultures? Is the idea of toxic masculinity just for light people? Hmm. There's a lot of questions. What's going on here? And if it if it is, let's just go with it. Let's just say it is for light people. In other words, like, come on. Come on, podcast guy, Mr. Hears. This doesn't really translate. This is really about light people culture. If that's what's going on here, does that mean there's no universal standard for how men should act? 
Does it mean that a good old-fashioned wife-beating in West Africa is okay? Just don't do it when you come to Denver. How can we figure this out? Well, we're going to try. Talk about heavy things lightly. Let's hear from some light people about this. Some 21st century light people. And they're going to define toxic masculinity. I think they can help us with this African angle, this old world angle. According to psychologist Terry Cuppers, a PhD from UCLA, he says, quote, toxic masculinity involves the need to aggressively compete and dominate. Toxic masculinity is the constellation of regressive male traits. Those traits are domination, devaluation of women, homophobia, wanton violence. That's Terry Cooper's PhD. Huh. Was I fostering domination when I took that branch from Madhu's father and then beat him with it? It was definitely fostering domination, I think. Were those elders being toxic when they made those boys suffer some serious fear during the Meru circumcision and forced them to hold that that plant? Did the elders who really liked when I hit Madhu, were they fostering domination and wanton violence? What about this toxic man definition from an article in Psychology Today? It's interesting. It's written by Ronald Levant. He's a PhD from the University of Akron. And he, this is important, I think, was a former president of the American Psychological Association. So it's not just some guy in his basement, right? He writes, quote, We must consider the difficult truth that men and boys are encouraged by society to be self-sufficient, stoic, strong, dominant, tough, and unemotional. And we must admit the difficult truth that we avoid conducting them in stereotypically feminine activities such as empathy and nurturance, unquote. We teach strength, dominance, stoicism, self-sufficiency, but we don't teach boys empathy and nurturance. That's what he says, but he's not finished. He adds, quote, this type of encouragement can promote really bad stuff. That's me saying that. He says, can promote really bad stuff like, quote, constriction of emotions, aggression, and violence. Oh, boy. I don't think Ronald Levant would like Mr. Kanake's circumcision story very much. I mean, I think the whole point of Mr. Kanake's Kenyan coming-of-age odyssey was the very acquisition of stoicism, strength, toughness, and all the things that the PhD, Mr. Levant, just said we focus on too much. But let's do another one. Here's a really interesting light person analysis of toxic masculinity that I think we should hear. It's from December 2019, very recent, in an article in something called The Feminist Current. It's written by a man named Robert Jensen. Jensen is a professor of journalism at the University of Texas. He's the author of a popular book entitled, interesting enough, The End of Patriarchy. He writes, quote, we should renounce 
the way men are trained to use threats and aggression to resolve disputes and instead foster collaboration. But he's pretty adamant in his writing. If we start to list the qualities of healthy masculinity, such things as caring, compassion, and connection, or using strength to protect and nurture, if we list those things, we realize that all of those positive traits are not unique to men. He continues, women are just as capable of these things. It turns out that embracing a healthy masculinity just means being a decent person, unquote. Do you feel what he's getting at? Quote, he says, we realize that all of the positive traits are not unique to men. He is getting at a sense of equality. Can you feel his uneasiness enlisting male traits? Can you feel how that just leads the reader toward the thought that there is such a thing as male? If you keep reading these types of articles and books, you'll quickly see that for many light people, the goal is to dissolve differences between men and women. The goal is to create equality so as to create a better world. Masculinity would be less toxic if there was no such thing as maleness. It would also be a more equal idea. It's why so many folks who think this way also want to destroy what they call patriarchy. What Jensen describes as the pathology of patriarchy, what he calls the illness of masculinity. And in the old world, this just doesn't fly. This kind of thinking isn't possible. To conceive of such a thing as no maleness or no femaleness is to actually destroy the very blueprint of existence. In the old world, before the Enlightenment, this type of thinking is to enter into a type of nihilism, an abyss of meaning, where all things are constructed for the sake of the constructor, for the sake of the one building the meaning. And that reminds me of a book by C.S. Lewis called The Abolition of Man. And that book probably describes the old world view on toxic masculinity in the most succinct terms possible. What does that book say? And I highly recommend all of you read it, by the way. Twice, slowly, because it can be difficult. What does C.S. Lewis's book say? It says that there is a template for living, a way of being. It overrides all, quote, ideas, and it supersedes all, quote, systems, and it's bigger than all theories. In fact, all of our human systems and ideologies must align with this template, or they will end up creating dysfunction, disease, and death. That template Lewis calls the Tao. He uses an ancient Chinese conception or idea, or truth, called the Tao. He says the Tao can be found in every human interaction, and at its core, it is the operating system through which all human beings achieve health, and by which all human beings find meaning. It's the way, that's actually what it means, the way. It is the way by which we know what is good, and 
also what is toxic. The Tao allows you to make judgments about what is toxic in males, what is toxic in females, what is toxic in monkeys, and what is toxic in margarine. Everything can be understood through the Tao. So, what is the template? What does it say about toxic masculinity? What does C.S. Lewis say about toxic masculinity? Well, he doesn't directly actually use that term, obviously. He's writing in the 1930s and 40s. But here's what his book basically says a toxic man should not do. Here's, Here's what it is. Lewis's book says a man should be beneficent and not kill another man. So killing, toxic. It says that a man should hope for and cherish all new life, human life, animal life, and plant life. Hmm, hate life, toxic. It says that a man should love and protect their kinfolk. It says that a man should honor his mother and his father like one honors the earth and the sun. It says that a man should honor the marriage of others. It says that a man should not lie and should not deceive. It says that a good man seeks justice for his neighbors. It says that a man should have mercy on those who suffer. It says that a man that sacrifices himself for others becomes a true man. So not doing these things makes a man toxic. Yeah, not going to sacrifice my time for you, buddy. Toxic. Yeah, you know what? I heard about the neighbors. Yeah, I kind of saw that it wasn't them that was stealing the uh, stealing the uh, garbage can from out in front. But I'm not going to get involved with that. Toxic. Right? Says that a man should honor his mother and father. Don't do that. Toxic. Guess what? Not doing these things makes a woman toxic too. In that way, men and women are equal because both are subject to the Tao, to the eternal truths laid out before them. Let me say that again. For Lewis, and for really all the old world thinkers, because they they all sort of align in a lot of ways, men and women are equal in one thing and one thing only, is that both are subject to the Tao. Both are subjects. Both are creatures. And both are subject to the creator. Equality for Lewis, and really for most old world cultures, was not in how one lived according to roles, roles of power or roles of equality. It was in the way both man and woman were subject equally to the law of God. Men and women must become obedient to the laws of God in the Tao. Think of it like a game of Twister. It just gives away my age. No one has played Twister in the last 20 years. If that game is still being sold, like, please leave me a note. I just said Twister. If you don't know what Twister is, well, you can Google it. But it's a game and you have to, like, place your feet on a, like, a red or blue or yellow spot on a rug. It's Twister, man. Well, think of the Tao as, like, A game of Twister. It puts the dots on the floor, and we have to align ourselves in the right way. And you know what? We have to do it or we become toxic. And guess what? 
we're toxic because not everybody can do it. I mean, the yellow one's way over there in my foot and I'm, oh, I'm a pretzel. We get toxic. We will become sideways. We will get sick. But we will fail to do things as men and as women, independent in terms of one another in the old world idea. In fact, part of C.S. Lewis's point in his book is to demonstrate that men and women are essential parts that make up the whole. Neither is whole when apart. For the old world, there is no man if there is no woman. There is no woman if there is no man. For Lewis and his idea of the Tao, men and women work together as incomplete parts to create a unity in God. They live and work together on this earth in order to become fully human, or in other words, fully in alignment with the Tao. To become healthy, each must complement the other. That's the evolution of man. That's C.S. Lewis. Where does Lewis get all this from? Well, his point in the abolition of man is that these eternal truths are clear both in the human heart and in man's narrative about himself in history. You can see it, he says, if you look carefully, silently, and with reverence for the sacred, for the creator, for the creation. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a very, 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 very old world way of finding out what is true. Silence, reverence, quiet. So, toxic masculinity. How should we understand this term as per the old world and this new world we live in? Well, I, I think the key for me is to realize that 21st century light people, especially feminists in, say, the 1970s, they base all of their understanding of men and masculinity on the twin notions of power and equality. Men who disorient and put women at a different level of equality, those men are toxic. Old worlders, people from before the Enlightenment, base all of their assumptions on men and masculinity on the twin ideas of divine creation and physiology. Another way of saying it is, when light people say men, they mean a way by which you identify yourself. And that way is largely unrelated to a set of behaviors. When old worlders say men, they're talking about human body parts and behavioral expectations, a way to be, which include things like courage and sacrifice and, well, the things we've talked about. When new worlders say toxic men, they mean men that create inequality. When old worlders say toxic men, they mean men that create disorder by disobeying the Tao, the laws of God. So, the golden life for light people, the thing that is eternal and unchanging is the acquisition of equality. Human life must be reordered to serve equality. Right? Notions of fixed maleness must be snuffed out because it creates division and inequality. For old worlders, the thing that is eternal and unchanging is God. Human life must be reordered to serve the creator, 
Notions of maleness and femaleness must be kept in place or there's no way to allow for union and in turn health. Hmm. It's still confusing, but what it is, right, is an invitation into the heavy stuff. I hope we did it lightly. That is our show today. Shetty's Gagimarchos. That's to you, the victory. That's often said at the KP table in the Georgian Republic, which is a kind of a half-mixed, old-world, new-world kind of place. That's our pod for today. Thanks for coming along. Watar is produced by Andrew Schwark and Daniel Paternos. Our pod is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation. That's a nonprofit that lives and works alongside some of the world's most impoverished people in most impoverished neighborhoods. Cool places. Just isolated. We immerse there in order to create momentum for local change makers, folks we call impresarios. We work on behalf of their vision for a better life. Share Watar with friends. Hit us up with solid reviews on iTunes and everywhere you get your podcast. Your love for us allows us to go out and love others. Nachfamdis, hasta luego. Kambufo, au revoir. Peace out.